0: This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we welcome again John Pillager, Triple Emmy Award-winning filmmaker in an encore broadcast. We'll talk to John about China-bashing and the fight to free John's friend Julian Assange, and a special rebroadcast of a report from the Chicano Park Museum on the 53rd anniversary. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. That's KPFA in the Bay Area. And we are happy to have you along. And we are always honored to welcome back... Uh, to these airwaves, our good friend John Pilger, uh, a multi-Emmy award-winning filmmaker, uh, among the most important, in my opinion, among the most important filmmakers, investigative reporters of the 20th and 21st century. From Vietnam to Palestine to Atomic War, Pilger's work has been on the cutting edge, and his stinging critique of Western media has always been revelatory and spot-on. Indeed, his biting analysis is more relevant and important now than ever. That film he wrote, put together just a little while ago, The Coming War on China, that's relevant. John Pilger, welcome back to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Jen. It's very good to be on the program again.
0: Well, let us start with uh, our good friend Julian Assange. I, I think you were with him in March... Uh, the situation doesn't seem to be uh, getting any lighter, but can you bring us up to speed? What's happening? What do we know? How's he doing? Well, I wish
1: I could, Dennis. It's very, it's very difficult to know. All I know at this stage is that uh, a judge in Britain uh, still has to approve whether or not um, uh, Julian is allowed to appeal against his extradition to the United States. Uh, So an appeal really hasn't happened. It's the approval of an appeal that is still pending. And that, I think, is the situation at the moment. It's such a slow-moving arcane um, process that um, I must say from time to time I suspect that there may be an ulterior motive and that um, one morning we wake up and we hear that Julian is already on a plane to the United States that's just a guess on my part
0: I don't know All right, John, you're in Sydney. Uh, We're talking to you from uh, Australia now. Uh, Julian is uh, from Australia. What's the deal? Is there any movement there? What's happening uh, with the Australian government? Any hope? No. I'm
1: sorry to have to say no, and probably an emphatic no, Dennis. Um, Look, there was... There was some um, small excitement in Australia when the Prime Minister, Anthony Albany's newly elected Labour Prime Minister, um, repeated um, what he'd said in opposition and that he believed that enough was enough uh, in Julian's case and that it should be brought to a conclusion. Uh but it wasn't brought to a conclusion, and he made it is clear now. He, he made, and his ministers have made no effort to help to bring it to conclusion. I'm afraid that Australia, Julian's own country, has played a significant part in in uh, in in the whole collusion around. Um, getting Julian to the United States. Um, the um, A normal person would look at all of this and say, this is obsessional. Uh, Julian has committed no crime. No pardon is asked for. Uh, even the charges that they say they will they will prosecute him with in the United States are based on uh, an archaic law, 1917, the Espionage Act, which has never been used before against a journalist or a publisher. So the whole thing could be abandoned tomorrow uh, and no law is affected. That's the point. Um, But This is Julian is a political prisoner, and I say that not rhetorically; it's a fact. He is a political prisoner, and that everything swirling about his case is politics. Uh, Whether those politics, sorry, no, please
0: go on. Please go on.
1: Uh, Well, I'm just about just going to say that whether those politics include. what would seem to us to be the humane way? I think is highly unlikely. I don't think big power operates in at any time in a humane sense. If it takes what might appear to be a humane decision, it's usually uh, because it suits its, its interests. And there seems to be, as I mentioned almost an obsession to get Julian behind bars in the U S and to make an example of him. I mean, we're seeing time and again, Dennis, um, what I would call the Julian Assange effect that the journalists who, who, um, challenge the national security state, um, find themselves up against some very sinister new laws in this country. There are dozens of new laws that um, um, uh, are, um, are, are meant to uh, end whistleblowing, leaking, uh, the journalism that supports them. So um, looking at it that way, there... The prize, I suppose, of these of these powers that be is Julian himself. Um, it's, uh, um, but that is inhumane because there's nothing to be gained. I mean, they've almost proved their point that they are more powerful than WikiLeaks. That's not to say they've crushed WikiLeaks, but they have distracted it to the point where
0: uh, it's not as effective as it used to be. Um, well, John, if I just jump in here, you say you say there's nothing to be yeah. gained. Uh, and that's a fact. And in fact, there's a great deal to be lost. I want to read just a little bit. I, I, I just uh, dragged this off your uh, website, johnpillager.com. Uh, and I, I want to sort of uh, focus you a little bit on this problem that we're all going to be facing in terms of not being able to practice journalism. You write in, uh, under a, a, a heading, The Lies About Assange Must Stop Now. Newspapers and other media in the United States, Britain and Australia have recently declared a passion for freedom of speech, especially their right to publish freely. They are worried by the Assange effect. And you go on to write, John, it is as if the struggle of truth tellers like Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning is now a warning to them that the thugs who dragged Assange out of the Ecuadorian embassy in April may one day Come for them, and look what's going on now. Everybody is quite concerned about the Russians taking the Wall Street uh, journalist. Reported, there's a lot of talk about that, but not a lot about Julian.
1: Yeah, um, Dennis, I can't hear you all that well, but I'll take a guess. Uh, look, um, the all the talk about free press and everything is specious. In my opinion, it's fake. If there ever was a proper free press in recent years, then they would have campaigned for the release of Julian Assange. They've only just, in the last year or two, come round to beginning to worry that perhaps they themselves will be under scrutiny by their their friends in power. Um, so. I, you know, I I think the whole notion of the free press is something that has to be revisited because there isn't a free press. Yes, there are honourable exceptions. Yes, there are people speaking out like yourself and others. Uh, but overall, in the so-called mainstream, there is not a free press, and in fact Julian's persecution has highlighted that fact, because the press itself turned on Julian as if he was breaking the rules of the club. Um, it, it, it's quite complicated in one sense and not in another, because it it if we we understood just how unfree the press is and how it manages its own restrictions. Um, I would think some of the big papers, famous papers like the New York times are among their worst at the moment. I've never known them as bad as they are. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just putting it in very simple language. The Guardian in London, for which I used to write, it's a terrible newspaper now. What's going on?
0: Good question. And we we'll are never get what's going on and what's going on. Uh, in the world that we're never going to find out about because we're not going to have the kind of journalism we need to do the business of the world, if you will. Uh, and it's becoming, John, more and more problematic. We, we, are, we are so close to so many big wars uh, and in the middle of several, uh, and there's nobody to really tell the story about what's really going on on the ground. That's why I guess they get rid of somebody such as, I'm not saying like Julian Assange because he is really quite unique in the current culture mm. of journalism. Mm. Uh, but let's talk more about that. I mean, it, it, we're, we're in trouble because we don't have good journalists.
1: Well, we're in trouble. I think we're in trouble. One of the reasons we're in trouble is we have, and I go back on this, we have believed our own myths about freedom of press. Um, You know, when I first went to the United States, um, uh, 90%, I think, I don't know if that's what it is now, but over 90% of the newspapers um, really followed right-wing agendas, uh, either Republican agendas, corporate agendas, or whatever. Um, The same was true not quite as high in the United Kingdom and all over the West and the world, which is forever proclaiming its, its free press. Uh, so, um, you know, in, in, into this, uh, um, or as part of this, has been, I would think, what I would call honourable exceptions, mavericks. People like uh, Seymour Hirsch, who still, um, uh, even though no one will will publish his extraordinary work, eh, it doesn't matter now, he can publish it himself. Um, So there's always been a series of people, individuals, Perhaps some groups, but individuals mainly, who have upheld the whole idea of the press as something completely free and uh, um, um, and separate uh, from uh, the state and from vested interests and so on. Um, so... We were really being victim of our own press. Along came Julian and WikiLeaks, and in a in a very short space of time, produced uh, a, a, a body of work that um, exposed so much of the um, of the, the inner workings of great power the secretive workings of great power, the often criminal workings of great power. Um, And that was a wake-up call to to the powerful. And and, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that is behind the obsession to put Julian himself away as an example. Because he really, he really not only embarrassed and exposed great power, but he really dispersed the myths that we're talking about. These comfortable liberal myths of this wonderful free press that we're meant to have. Um, And... uh, so on two fronts, he brought some raw truth into this whole vital area of communications, of how we find out about things, of news, of, of, of understanding events, making sense of events. Um, so in a way, that's perhaps the reason he made enemies on both sides, both in power and in the press and in the media itself. He, he, he shamed people because yes. WikiLeaks did the job that so
0: much of the media ought to have been doing already. That's absolutely... <laughs> The truth. We're speaking with John Pilger. Uh, He's in uh, Sydney, Australia. We're talking about his friend, our friend, the great journalist-publisher Julian Assange, who, if the United States has its way, will never see the light of day again. And that is an extraordinary uh, tragedy. John, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the recent state visit uh, that we had here from the new uh, Cor- uh, South Korean president, and besides the pomp and circumstance and my singing and him singing American pie, uh, it was announced that the United States would be, in the name of peace, would be providing uh several nuclear capable submarines just to keep the balance of power there. Uh, they didn't announce uh, yet an end to the Korean War, but they're sending nuclear submarines. This this is sort of like uh, the next phase of your film, uh, the coming war against China, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, this is... A, I think I got you right. This is a state visit of the South Korean press. Yes. Was it? The Koreans. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, <sighs> That's very interesting, because I mean that's had very little publicity down here because the same thing happened here i mean that's uh, the the u s is what it's clearly doing is organizing um, a whole network of alliances uh at the center of which are its most lethal weapons, which it will keep control of, there's no question about that, but which its its so-called allies will pay for. Um, I mean, it's uh, ingenious, really. Uh, And Korea is, is one of them. That is a particularly volatile one because that's right in the heart of Northern Asia and right next to China. Um, but something very similar has happened in Australia, whereas um, the Australian government is, I think, uh, been already been handed a bill, because a bill before they've had the meal, uh Of something like nearly four hundred billion dollars uh for uh basically American submarines uh that will be new nu- nuclear capable um, and will be i i have to say in anyone's in anyone's understanding utterly useless in in achieving any kind of dominance over China, so all I can think of, these are the most incredible scams being pulled off by the international, the, by the American war industry. And they've got got it going in, with Korea as well. But it's very dangerous. that's the point. It's very dangerous. The Chinese are not going to take this line down. Um, And especially as China is at the moment being probed day after day by U.S. ships, U.S. drones. It's been overlooked by U.S. bases. Um, How much of this kind of provocation will it take? I don't know is the answer to that. They've got got, uh, an amazing patience for Chinese, but it isn't
0: infinite. This is, John, I I, I hope you can hear me. This this is, John, part of the long-term strategy, some call it the Pacific pivot, Uh, and it is all about controlling China by land, air, sea, and space. This is. These are the kinds of things you've been talking about, John, for a long time. But it seems to be moving faster. Yeah. The exercises are even getting larger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, the, Dennis. Uh, tomorrow down here. It's not tomorrow where you are. Yeah. April the thirtieth is the anniversary of the last day of the end of the longest war. Uh, uh of the twentieth century, Vietnam, which I reported. Uh all the myths that you have rightly drawn attention to were around that. That we were going to have all these countries are going to fall like dominoes and that the you know, the great red tide was going to sweep through Asia. And it was all terrible, mythical, made-up, absolute nonsense. I've got, I've, I've got to restrain myself for describing what I really think it is. Because, and here we go again. You know, here we go yet again. Now it's China itself. China has hasn't indicated in any sense that it's anyone's enemy. It's a big country. It's the world's workshop. It's uh, it's a, it's a country that remarkably has risen from from really from widespread poverty to. Uh, a great well-off economic force in just over a generation. That's never happened before. That's amazing. And when you go to China, as I have, people are very grateful for that. They like their government, actually. We never read about that. They like their government, and they, generally speaking, I'm sure that there are quite a few that don't like it, But, but the majority, it seems to me, and all the polls so this, like it very much because what it's achieved in that time. So it's a big country. It's got a lot of people. It was always the most populous nation on Earth. You know, they just had to go to the nearest geography book and they would have told them that. So how is it expected to behave? It's gone out and it's traded with the world and done deals with the world. and But at no point has it threatened other countries. Um, And we're having to put up with this fiction, which we had to put up with during the Vietnam War and which we had to put up with during the Korean War. That's when it really all started after the Second World War. Um, And... uh, uh, you know, these, these none of these countries should have suffered the way they did. Korea suffered terribly under American bombing, um, north and south. None of them should have suffered. The Vietnamese lost probably 3 million people, though we never can be sure about that. That should never have happened. Um, so what? What is this about? Either we have we hurriedly construct a system that stops it,
0: or it's going to happen again. am I is if I reduced it to the following John would, would this be a sort of an exaggeration China tends to build cities and the United States tend to build bombs bombs don't uh, have any really redeeming value and cities uh, hold people and give them a place to live is this where we are yeah I Sorry, Des. I'm I'm having I'm just having trouble. It's not uh, a great I'm line. So, uh, I'm just I'm I'm suggesting that China's good at building cities, and the U.S. is good at building bombs. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, China's number one aim—that's very very clear—was to raise people out of poverty. And the U.N. has credited China with raising, can you believe it, something like 700 million people out of poverty. That's that's rural poverty and transferred most of the population in the process from the countryside to the cities. I mean... Whereas the United States is filled with poverty, the statistics are shocking, and I read them yesterday, you know with the number of numbers of children in, in poverty in the u s very high, and so on so uh, with, but with resources so distorted with the Pentagon getting more and more money and more and more money going on building weapons, it's got to come from somewhere and it's come from the heart of the nation. That's very clear. I mean, I always find the tragedy, one of the real tragedies for America's enemies or which it regards as enemies is... But they have to react. They have to then start to build, start building arms, missiles, ships, and that's what China's doing. Obviously, it's got to defend itself. Um, it, that that, and I saw it happen in in Vietnam, in a kind of in northern Viet, North Vietnam sort of developed from quite open liberal beginnings it developed a state of siege because it was on the siege uh, uh, in order and that was in order to defend itself um, my My argument, Dennis, is that none of this is necessary and that if you actually listen to some of the things that the Chinese are saying, which they always take the long game and they're not interested in war because war messes everything up. War war, war devastates economies and distorts economies. They know that. And they benefited enormously from not having wars. They don't want one. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a kind of sim, simple logic that anyone can work out. Uh, and I, I've, I've tried to understand the, the attitudes that drive the United States and its Western so-called allies, Britain, Australia, the rest of them. And I don't think I can because it's its so stupid. Um, it's a kind of 19th century mentality. They might as well dress up in pit helmets and plumes and prance around, you know, um, that doesn't make any sense. Whether they try if they if they provoke China to the point of war, what are they gonna get from it? Because China's a nuclear power and it's got a very powerful nuclear ally, Russia. So what's the point of all this? Venice, I don't
0: know is the answer. Beats me. Mm. No answer, huh? <clears throat> yeah. It's a dangerous time in history, John. Very dangerous. Dangerous moment. Yeah, very dangerous. That that's that
1: that is what we're facing. The danger of it. Because it's the danger to people's lives. I often thought I'm incredibly lucky to have got to my stage in life, having not been blown up by the United States. That uh, is that is extraordinary <laughs> achievement on my part. I don't know nice how going. it happened or didn't happen, but I haven't. Uh, But here we go again, danger
0: time. Wow. Well, John, always great to speak with you. Sorry the connection isn't great, but the information is always incredibly important, and and thanks for uh, Uh, for, uh, giving us an early look at uh, Saturday.
1: (laughs) Oh, very... Very good, Dennis, and Thank you for all you do on the program. Keep going; we need you. All right, okay. thanks, John. All, Be all the best, you there. Yep. Bye bye. Bye bye now.
0: John Pilger, extraordinary journalist, filmmaker. Dozens of frontline films that'll take the top of your head off. His uh, his filming about Vietnam. Just extraordinary. His his uh, two visits uh, 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 and his documentaries, uh, Palestine and still Palestine is the problem. Uh, and just one amazing frontline documentary. As I we were talking about uh, his uh, very prescient film he made this years ago. Now the coming war on China. Powerfully uh, sets the growing potential for war between the US and China. What we're going to do is we're going to take a nice musical break. flashpoints on Pacifica Radio and now we continue our celebration of Chicano Park where Sarah Banco, Freewill and Frank, Falcone Molina and the crew report on the 53rd Chicano Park Day. Listen to this.
2: Hi everyone! My name is Valerie Hymas. I am the executive director of the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center. We're out here on our sacred land, Chicano Park. And on Chicano Park Day, April 22nd, 53 years ago, this land was taken back. And I'm here in front of the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center, a lot of historical context and background to this building itself um, and to the park, the land take back. So welcome, I'm so happy to be here and thanks for tuning in. Let's Let's go check it out.
3: So we are with the director of the new Chicano Cultural Museum Opened in 2022, but has been doing a lot of work since 2015. All right, so this is Sarah Blanco and Falcone for Flashpoints. Introduce yourself again for us and tell us uh, where we are and where we're headed to.
2: All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Valerie Hymes. I'm the executive director here at the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center. Right now we're inside the building where it's Chicano Park Day. So we're a lot of commemoration is happening, a lot of education and honoring the past, present and future. We're in our um, our hallway here and I will lead you kind of into our um, emerging collection. And so I'll start off with a piece of my own. Actually, I just donated it today. So this is a very special moment for me. This is one of my pieces. Um, I took this photo last year for Chicano Park Day 52. So Chicano Park Day 52, we did a new fire ceremony honoring a new calendar. This is during the sunrise. And this was a very sacred and transition, like a pivotal moment for me. And so I wanted to honor that in our collection. And I wanted to, you know, uh, introduce it today, especially because this year's Chicano Park Day theme is kindling the new fire, honoring that we are passing the torch on to new generations, and learning from our elders, our mentors, and honoring that into our work here. So this is a very special moment for me, the community. I um, my biggest thing is showing up for others the way that they've shown up for me, and with that comes our elders and our mentors. All right. Can you describe this for our radio people who can't yes, see it, please? Yes, of course. So right here, we are in front of one of the pieces here in our collection. Again, we're still in this hallway, our, our first hallway that you come down in the museum and you, see, and you come down this narrow hallway, you see all these pieces. This is one of the first pieces you see. I actually just donated this piece today. Um, it's in a frame and it's a photo of mine. The photo is from our Chicano Park Day last year, Chicano Park Day 52. This, is during, this photo was taken during a new fire ceremony. During the fire ceremony, we honored a new calendar. It's definitely a pivotal moment for us, um, for Chicanos and Chicanas here across Aslan. And so this photo is very special to me because it was a very spiritual and commemorative moment during this sunrise. So this photo is during the sunrise. It has danzantes here, and they're in front of the kiosco. And you can just kind of see the light peeking through and the danzantes' feathers and you see the Mexican flag too. And you see all the danzantes showing up for us and, and doing in cer- ceremony. So this was a very special moment for me. Um, I was actually a part of the ceremony in the way that the museum was also honored during the ceremony for the first time. We had not been open t- until later that year for during October. And so this we were still able to be in the building. So the ceremony, we were able to bring the danzantes in, come in and bless the building. And that I got to be a part of that in the way that I was carrying a special artifact into the museum, along with my mentor, Josephine Talamantes, who is also a board chair. So that's not being depicted in this picture, but it still brings a lot of memories to me. So this is my donation to the collection, honoring honoring our mentors. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Where are we going to head to next? Yeah, so down this hall is our Emerging Collection. We have a lot of different pieces featured here, all donated. So again, Emerging, so always taking more donations. And we also are finishing off with a magu piece here. This is a part of our Emerging Collection. This was one of our first donations to our collection. And we do plan to establish more pieces here. Um, I also want to point behind us we have another great piece done by Hector Villegas right here and this is a large piece so right now we're in our hallway you know there's a lot of people coming in so this is when you enter the museum these are the pieces that you first see is our collection. And so with that being said, the piece that we're looking at right now is done by one of our board members. His name is Hector Viegas, And this piece honors two individuals. So it's a, a large painting with two folks on it. One is T- Tomasa Camario or Tommy Camario. Tommy Camario is someone that we all look up to here in the community. She is our Chicano Park Steering Committee Chair Por Vida which means she has been here for since the beginning. She has been a part of the land take back. And since then, she has also been a self-taught archivist in, in the way that she's also been an activist. So she's been preserving a lot of historical context for us in physical, tangible ways. Um, you know, videos. We have a lot of brochures. We have posters. Chicano Park Day posters are a part of her collection. We have buttons. We have T-shirts, everything that you can think of. So this painting honors Tommy Camarillo, who has shown up for the park in the community for decades. Um, She's still here and a very proud, prevalent in the community. She's present all the time. She comes to the museum and we actually feature her collection here. So that's one of um, our very, a very great piece of us is that we're able to share her collection um, and host it here. And so that's very a great honor of ours. And so with that, she's in this photo or in this painting. She's uh, next to one of our muralists here in the park. His name is Victor Ochoa. He was one of the original muralists here that brought a lot of thrive, like uh, brought a lot of thriving to the space. Um, one of the things that we talk about in our premier exhibition, the exhibition is titled Pillars, Stories of Resilience and Self-Determination. But one of the things that we honor is taking this symbol of a pillar, um, a symbol that was really meant for destruction, displacement, and oppression, and and revitalizing it, retwisting it, reclaiming it, into our own cultura. And muralists have been able to do that for us in terms of cultural expression um, and you know, honoring our past and our ancestors. And also just the educational component too, when we come and we see the murals, we're able to learn about ourselves and feel empowered to see ourselves in these beautiful and sacred spaces. So Victor Ochoa was definitely a part and is still a part of that he has many murals here in Chicano Park. So in this painting, it's honoring Tomasa Camarillo and Victor Ochoa.
3: Yeah. We're going to walk through now, and, and you're gonna let us know where we can walk through, because one of the yeah. things with coming here is, is that it's a physical experience. And yes, you know, there may be people who um, maybe can't physically be here, so it's important to, to be able to access it through right. video. Um, Tell us about what you recommend people come to see when they come here.
2: When you come visit the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center, I definitely recommend coming to visit our inaugural inaugural exhibition, Pillars, Stories of Resilience and Self-Determination. This is a historical narrative that captures the historical context within the park and the community at large. We really wanted to honor voices, counter narratives, voices that have been oppressed, and we did such things in our exhibition. So the exhibition if you is a real great capture of honoring all the grassroots organizations that have been a part of this legacy. We have 12 different pillars on display that also represent 12 different grassroots-led organizations that were um, very prevalent in the community and still continue to do so. And then we also have an installation by Salvador Torres, we also call him Gessel here, and he is one of the original visionaries in the park. All right. So
3: everything in here appears to be about my height. I'm about 5'5". Five, uh, five five. It's a little bit taller. And they I can tell that they look like miniature representations of the pillars that hold up these beasts of freeways, overpasses, that are over Chicano Park. Um, I see a shovel. Do tell what we're looking at here, and they're all painted beautifully.
2: Thank you. Great description. Yes, so when we first walk into the exhibition, you will meet our first pillar, which is a Kumeyaay story pillar. This is very intentional for us because being Chicanas, being Chicanos, we represent and honor the indigenous roots that we hold and also acknowledge Mm -hmm. whose land we stand and reside on, right? So here in San Diego... Uh, We are on Kumeyaay land, and it was very important and crucial for us to honor that. So our first pillar is the Kumeyaay story. It was done by students at Kumeyaay Community College. And this is our first pillar that we're met with right here. Um, On the pillar itself, we have constellations of stars here. And that represents, each constellation represents different stories within the Kumeyaay culture. And then um, there is a life-size uh, model or or painting of a woman, um, a Kumeyaay woman, and actually the lead artist of this pillar, her name is Angelica. She said that she wanted to paint herself, so this is kind of a self portrait in a sense. Um, her skin is kind of an olive color, and she did that intentionally because she was, feels very tied to the land and wanted to honor that. This right here on the other side of the Kumeyaay pillar is on um, done by the same art lead artist. Her name is Angelica. La break, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, but on this other side here is a bird singer. And so the way she, you know, explained it to me was the first side is kind of honoring the historical ties, going back to our ancestors. And then we kind of traveled through present time. And now we're honoring our bird singers and how the, the men, you know, carry on, revitalize that tradition. Yeah. Beautiful. Where
3: are we allowed to walk through next? Because I know that this is something that Yeah, we want. well,
2: we can take you to the second pillar maybe okay. just to give you all another... Ooh another Sneak taste peek, okay. and then maybe we can kind of leave it there. I think it's a great pillar to leave off of. Yeah of course I can definitely talk about this. So what we're looking at right here is when you enter the exhibition your first kind of um, or second slash first thing that catches your eye is our tidal wall. So the tidal wall is our exhibition pillar stories of resilience and self-determination, but it's also an homage that our board chair and curator of the exhibition, Josephine Talamantes, wrote to each of the pillars. So I mentioned earlier that there's 12 pillars featured here, which represents 12 different organizations. Well, our board chair did the did this um, narrative to to pay them homage and to say thanks. So each. Um, paragraph is a thank you to each of these organizations for their work, you know, for their work um, showing up for us and, and sacrificing for us.
3: Thank you so much. Um, maybe you could pick uh, three of those organizations and tell us a little bit about your experience with either um, learning their history or being a part of them or telling uh, newcomers uh, the history.
2: Yes. So I just talked a little bit about the Kumeyaay Pillar And I would like to also talk about the Chicano Park Steering Committee. Being that it is Chicano Park Day, being that we are the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center, the Chicano Park Steering Committee is a sister organization that we really work hand-in-hand with. A lot of the people that were there on the, in the park takeover 53 years ago today are also board members of our Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center. So while we are separate, we are also very much intertwined, show up for one another in different ways. And this is one of our pillars, the Chicano Park Steering Committee. On the pillar itself, there's a commemoration to the, the land take-back. You'll see the construction of the kiosko, which is a huge fight in itself. You'll see the pillar... With a brown image kind of right up there, it was the first. There's a huge conversation around what were the first murals, you know, what do we consider murals. But brown image right there was kind of one of the first things that we saw on the murals. Of course, I wasn't there, but this is what I've learned. And then we have Victor Ochoa again. So I did mention Victor earlier, but we have Victor here. And he is surrounded by more of a vibrant blue color intentionally. So the rest of the, the side of the pillar has more earthy tones honoring the land struggle. And, um, and, then, and then Victor is kind of in a vibrant blue. So he stands out. And that was done by the artist intentionally to honor and represent that muralists were really the ones who were able to reclaim the space visually, culturally, you know, in many different ways. We reclaimed the land through murals, through organizing and mobilizing. And so they wanted to depict that here. And then the last organization or group that I would like to speak on is the Aslan Youth Brigade. That is our next pillar here in the exhibition. The Aslan Youth Brigade, this was a very special pillar for me because in this pillar, they honored sister territories to Chicano Park. So Chicano Park has sister territories throughout Aslan, and um, one of them is Santa Barbara Ortega Park, which is my hometown. And so that, that was really special for me to see that they honored that, that the youth are, are honoring their, their peers and mobilizing together. Even if they're not in the same city or the same area, they make the effort to reach out and show up. And so that I have so much respect for, and it was very special for me because my sisters also were able to connect with the youth here. My, I have young, two younger sisters, and so to see, to see youth come together and, um, and want to learn and educate themselves on our history and, and learn about their identities and, and their own self-determination is huge. So I wanted to also talk about Asan Youth Brigade because they are huge land protectors here and also just amazing organizers.
3: Well, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to say uh, about the museum? What you recommend that people do who want to fly out here or drive out here, spend a weekend? Is that enough? There's so much to do in San Diego. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful place. Um, And, you know, we're so attracted to some of these larger sort of events that sort of that exploit people. Quite frankly, and animals, um, and then we 're in a town with a very, very large military presence, and just walking in here, I felt a warm beauty, even though I felt the air conditioning and it felt cool to be in here. I felt such a glow and such a warm in here, so I do recommend that people make that trip maybe you 're coming out for some music event or maybe you are coming out for that place that exploits animals, hopefully not, but even if you do to come out here, whether it 's family or on your own, make the trip because we're we 're in a war personally and We fight it in many, many ways. And um, by knowing our history, by having our visual and our audio history is is really important and that's part of it.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think that What's been so rewarding here for in this museum and in this community or just seeing people come across, you know, across borders, across na- the nation, you know, is that they get to see the, a piece of themselves reflected in here. And that's what is very rewarding to me because that's exactly what I needed when I grew up. You know, when I see youth come in here and they see themselves or they see their grandparents, I get a little emotional because, you know. It's an emotional day for me, but it's very beautiful, and that's that's what we want to do. We want to be there for the youth, for our elders. We want to pass down our traditions and our cultures, and I feel like this museum is such a beautiful place to do that and a sacred space as well. And considering the land takeover and the building takeover here, I think that we need to carry that on and always pay homage and thanks to our ancestors. And so this is a museum, you know, for the people. And so that's very important to us.
3: Oh, that's so beautifully said. We have to have our pride, our pride in who we are. And fear is such a thief of that pride because of everything that's going on. And I can't thank you enough for the work that you do. Anything else you want to say to to people who... Um, don't know their history or don't know enough you know don't be ashamed right it can be really tough I didn't really know much until I was in my late 20s um it was weird to start learning more about my history from like um college age students at UC Santa Cruz um and then I would start filling in the pieces like no that's not right and like oh no they don't got it right you know what do they know um anything else you'd like to say to people just learning their history
2: Hmm. Great question because I think that it's a lifelong process and I think that's beautiful and it's, you know, healing and healing isn't linear. You know, it comes with its struggles, but, you know, so do our people. And so I think that it's also very, very empowering. You know, yes, it's a long line of, you know, colonization and, and unpacking what that meant on a personal and on a communal level, I think is a lot of energy intake and you're putting a lot of energy and learning that. And so I think that it's, it's important to know that it's an, a lifelong journey, you know, and for me, that's been my personal experience. But, you know, I have gone to higher, higher education like you mentioned and I've been in ethnic studies and I have great, great, professors. that, and, and that's actually the reason that I'm here. My mentor and professor, Dr. Alberto Pulido, is the vice chair here at the museum. But he introduced me here, really, and brought me with open arms here into the community. So my point was that, you know, I've been in these higher educational spaces, but you learn more about yourself. You learn more about your, your family, your community, here in the community itself. So... To anyone who wants to explore that, I definitely feel like you can uh, do that here. And you're more than welcome to. Our biggest thing is welcoming people of all walks of life here. And so um, more power to you. Power to the
3: people. Yes. Thank
2: you so much. Yes. uh, Valerie Hymas. And this is the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center. Thank you all for tuning in. And thank you so much for, you know, learning more about me and the museum. Thank you so much. What an honor. In the year
4: 1970, in the city of San Diego, under the Coronado Bridge, light a little piece of land. A little piece of land that the Chicano community of Logan Heights wanted to make into a park. A park where all the chavalitos could come and play in, so they wouldn't have to play in the street and get run over by a car. A park where all the viejitos could come in the tarde and just sit down and watch the sun go down. A park where all the familias could come and just get together on a Sunday afternoon and celebrate the spirit of life itself. But the city of San Diego said, Chale, we're gonna make a highway patrol substation here. So on April the 22nd, 1970, La Raza of Logan Heights and other Chicano communities got together and they walked down the land and they took it over with their picks and their shovels and they began to build their own park. And today, almost 20 years later, A little piece of land under the Coronado Bridge in San Diego is known to people everywhere as Chicano Park. It began in 1970 under the Coronado Bridge. Bye. Oh chica no pa, oh chica no pa. Continue to live, my brother. We shall continue to fight my friend. We shall continue to live, my brother. We shall continue to fight my friend. But you got no point. it up for another episode of flashpoints our executive producer is dennis bernstein senior producers are miguel Gavilan molina and kevin pina technical director is mike biggs for previous episodes go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net for questions or comments email dennis at kpfa.org thank you for listening